This morning, we come to study another appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, recorded for us in the verses I just read to you, John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. And John tells us in verse 26 that it occurred on the eighth day, which is a Sunday again, by the Jewish way of counting days inclusively. So in the Jewish way of counting days, the first Sunday was the first day, and then Monday was the second day, and so on and so forth. So it's actually Sunday again when the eighth day rolls around. And this is not the main point of this passage, but I just want to point out to you, I just want to make for you or draw out for you an incidental point of application, that the New Testament scriptures place a great deal of emphasis and importance upon Sundays. So evidently did the apostles, since we know from historical study that the early Christians uniformly started meeting on Sundays. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle John mentions a day called the Lord's Day. And even the Seventh-day Adventist scholar Samuel Bakayoki, in his seminal work from Sabbath to Sunday, concedes that this phrase, as it appears in Revelation, does indeed refer to Sundays. The reason for this biblical evidence, or this biblical emphasis, pardon me, and this apostolic emphasis, is that Sunday is the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday is the day that Jesus appeared to his disciples on more than one occasion. Sunday is the day that Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. In view of all of this data, it is indisputably clear that at least that the disciples understood it to be the case that Christians should worship together on Sundays since they taught the churches that they planted to do so, and that uniformly. There wasn't a diversity of practice in the early church. It was Sundays, because that's the day Jesus rose. That's the day he appeared to us. That's the day that he poured out his Holy Spirit. That's the day that we're supposed to worship. And so the apostles evidently taught their uh, churches to do that. Um, Evidently, they believed that Christians should worship on Sunday since they taught their churches to do that. But more than that, by inference, we must conclude that they understood worship on Sundays, the Lord's Days, to be the new covenant way of keeping the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Because the apostles teach, and Jesus teaches in the New Testament scriptures, the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments, even in the New Covenant. And yet, in the pages of the New Testament, both Jesus and the Apostles are conspicuously silent at best, and possibly even dismissive at points, depending on how you read certain passages, about the importance of observing the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day. So just note in passing, this is just one incident among several that we read in the New Testament. But just note in, in passing, the emphasis that John puts on the day of the week. Um, on one sense, um, it might just be a little historical detail, but on another point, or from another perspective though, if there was no significance to it, and it didn't matter whether it was a Sunday or a Tuesday or a Friday or whatever, why mention it at all? Why not just say a few days later or something? So just note that. And note as you go forward in your personal devotions, the frequency of such 
incidents of emphasis in the New Testament that as you work your way through, you'll find um, quite significant is the day Sunday. If there is one special day of the week in the minds of the inspired New Testament authors, it is most certainly Sunday. But now to the main substance of the sermon, which is not that. The main substance of the sermon derived from the main emphasis of this text that I read for you. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Jesus appears again to the disciples as he did on the Sunday prior. But last time, John tells us in John 20 and verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This time, however, Thomas is present, and it's his interaction with Jesus which is front and center in our text this morning. Let's begin by examining what Thomas had said about the other disciples' claims to have seen Jesus, which John records for us in John 20 and verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Note first that this phrase, this set of demands were not really conditions for belief, but rather were an expression of unbelief. Let me explain that. Thomas was a literal, naturalistic sort of guy. We know this from John eleven sixteen and John 14 and verse 5. Some of you may recall that in John eleven sixteen, after Jesus had said that they were going to go to Bethany, which was about as far from Jerusalem, where people were trying to kill Jesus, as our church building is here from the Shaphat in Wildey, which is not too far, Thomas, correctly perceiving then the element of danger of returning to such close proximity to Jerusalem, but not factoring in the divine protection that he and his Lord and their band of companions were to enjoy until the appointed time, Thomas says in John eleven sixteen, let us also go that we may die with him. And then in John 14 and verse 5, Jesus had said, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. In comes Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So Thomas is not really given over very fully to a supernatural worldview, nor given to factoring into his calculations supernatural intervention. Thomas is a straightforward, naturalistic, literal thinking kind of guy. His statement then, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It wasn't intended to communicate that he was entertaining the, other, the idea that the other disciples might be right, but that he just needed a little more evidence. Rather, it was more along the lines of the skeptical 
figure of speech that many use today. I'll believe it when I see it. It doesn't mean that people are entertaining. If you say something to someone, they say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. It doesn't mean that you're like, oh, okay, well, let me go get it for you so that you can see it. It means not. I don't believe that. It means, yeah, right. It's most likely that Thomas is thinking along these same lines, along the same lines, rather, as the disciples on the road to Emmaus, recorded for us in Luke chapter 24. Remember they said, they're talking about the death of Jesus, and then they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But Thomas thinks that he knows that all the hopes that he had for Jesus are dead now. For Jesus himself is dead. And dead people don't rise from the dead. Based on what we have seen Thomas say throughout John's Gospel, I believe that if we can get into his mind, this is the sort of way of thinking that we would observe. Now obviously this is not a full understanding of the Gospel, to say the least. The Old Testament believers, however, never heard the name of Jesus. They didn't understand the details of God's plan and the fullness that we are able to understand after Pentecost and after the writing of the New Testament scriptures. But that didn't mean that they didn't truly believe whatever they could understand, whatever had been revealed to that point. So it is, or seems to be the case with Thomas here. We don't need to see him as a total unbeliever. He's more like an Old Testament believer who believes generically that a descendant of Eve will crush the serpent's head. And then through a descendant of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that a descendant of David would become David's greater son and possess a greater and more lasting dominion than David himself. That Yahweh cares for his people and would provide a Messiah for his people. It seems to me that Thomas just hadn't been able to connect the dots. That the Messiah that Yahweh had provided for his people was Jesus. And that the crucified Jesus could be the descendant of Eve who had crushed the serpent's head. That the crucified Jesus could be the descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth were now to be blessed. That the crucified Jesus was in fact David's greater son who was on the cusp of approaching the ancient of days and being given an everlasting dominion. So I think this is where Thomas is at. He's a believer, but you know how some believers are more prone to see God's hand in everything and God's fingerprints in everything and more supernaturally minded, and more spiritually and, and heavenly minded, and some are less, I think we're going to see Thomas on the less end of the spectrum. He's not prone to immediately jumping to a phrase like, this was, this was a God thing, right? Or, well, let's pray about it. Who knows what God will do? Thomas probably wasn't on that end of the spectrum. Thomas was probably like, well, yeah, sure, God can do a miracle, but he doesn't do a miracle every time. He was probably more on that end of the spectrum, if you know what I mean. 
He's a believer. He believes in the supernatural, but he's probably a little less on the supernatural end of the spectrum than some. He's not prone to assuming that God probably will bend the laws of nature, right? Or defy the laws of nature at a certain point or in a certain instance. So that God's hand of protection will surely be upon them. Or because Jesus is the Messiah, it sure looks like this is the end. But because of God, it must not be. God must have a plan. He's probably not on that end of the spectrum. Thomas believes that dead people remain dead, at least until the last day. As Martha had indicated to Jesus, that she believed her brother Lazarus would arise at the last day, but it was beyond the pale of her current thinking that Lazarus might arise today. So it was probably the case that Thomas was like, well, I believe at the last day dead people don't remain dead, but it was beyond the pale of his thinking that Jesus had actually come back and appeared to the disciples. And look at how Jesus deals with Thomas. As Jesus had done with the other disciples last week, last Sunday, so Jesus deals with Thomas here. Jesus comes to him with grace. This is not a new thing that we're seeing in this passage. Jesus met the other disciples with grace on the Sunday prior. Eight days ago, the Jewish way of reckoning. But Jesus met them as a group. We only hear, we only have recorded for us what he said to them. In a sense, we could think about this appearance to Thomas, recorded for us just a few verses later, though it happens eight days later. We could think about this appearance to Thomas as a specific, zoomed-in case study of Christ's grace for individual sinners. We hear in this passage before us today, not what Jesus said to a group, but what Jesus said to an individual. Not what Jesus said to them, but what Jesus said to him. Note first that Jesus again starts with peace be with you. As we saw when I was preaching on this a couple of weeks ago, or the prior passage, the disciples had every reason to be frightened when they saw Jesus for the first time after the resurrection. Of course, there was the simple fact that he had been dead and that seeing him alive again would be scary. But more than that, there was also the reality that they had all abandoned him in his hour of need. When Jesus was most a friend to them, they proved themselves unfriendly toward Jesus. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. What kind of love is it when all the people that you thought were your friends run? So perhaps Jesus was coming to punish them, they might have thought. Thomas here had not only abandoned Jesus in his hour of need, as all the other disciples had, but Thomas had explicitly rejected the claim of the other disciples to have seen Jesus. We don't read that Thomas, as Mary did at Jesus' birth, kept all these things and pondered them in his heart. We read that he's like, nah. I'll believe it when I see it. Okay, when I see Jesus with the nail marks, 
and the whole other side from the sphere, and when I can touch it and see it, then I'll believe it. Until then, no way. And so, no doubt, Thomas would have felt fearful and sheepish this second Sunday, as the other disciples would have felt that first Sunday. And so it seems to me that it was most likely largely for Thomas's sake that Jesus repeats, peace be with you. Jesus reiterates that he is not there to deal out punishment, but that he wishes peace upon his friends. They are still his friends. Even Thomas. They're still loved by him. And then directly, pardon me, and then after speaking peace to his disciples, including Thomas, Jesus turns his attention directly towards Thomas and speaks to him as an individual. Says to him in verse 27, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Jesus is willing to have Thomas touch it to verify that his eyes are not deceiving him. As Jesus says in Luke 24, touch me. See that I'm not a spirit. You're a piece of fish, give it to me. Let me eat it. Let me show you I'm not a spirit. I'm resurrected bodily. Jesus is willing to condescend to answer to Thomas's satisfaction the objections that Thomas has raised to his resurrection. <laughs> but it proves to be unnecessary because without even putting his finger in the nail marks or his hand in Jesus' side, Thomas cries out, My Lord and my God. Some liberal or cultic theologians who deny the divinity of Jesus have taken Thomas' words here as a sort of blasphemous exclamation akin to the modern day, oh my God. In their view, Thomas is not acknowledging Jesus to be God, but is simply using God's name as an exclamation because he's surprised to see, see Jesus risen. But this sort of thing would have been unthinkable to any religious Jew, which Thomas certainly was. Instead, we should see here what D.A. Carson points out. Thomas's confession is the climactic exemplification of what it means to honor the Son as the Father is honored. It is the crowning display of how human faith has come to recognize the truth set out in the prologue to John's Gospel. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When read in the context of the whole Gospel, against the backdrop of the prologue, as Carson points out, but also against the backdrop of statements from Jesus, such as, I and the Father are one, it is clear that John intends us to interpret Thomas's confession as Thomas's realization of what John has been teaching throughout his gospel. And we know that this is the right way to take it. 
Because Jesus implicitly acknowledges that Thomas has indeed believed. Jesus says in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. But just notice at this juncture that Jesus is acknowledging that Thomas has in fact believed. And so even the response of Jesus shows us that we are to take these words as indicative that Thomas has come to see that Jesus is his Lord and his God. Totally overwhelmed by Jesus' appearance and words, Ritterboss says, the confession, my Lord and my God, conveys Thomas' deep shame and reverence at seeing Jesus' divine glory. A glory surpassing all human standards. It also reflects the strong personal sense with which Thomas yields to Jesus. The usual address of respect, my Lord, was not sufficient. For what at the sight of Jesus filled Thomas with awe, he had only one word left. My God. For who could do what Jesus did and thus, as the one who is pierced, appear in omnipotence, but he with whom God had united himself in this manner. So Thomas's confession is, as Carson said, a prime example of what it would mean to believe the entirety of John's gospel. That Jesus is the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God. That He and the Father are one. And that Jesus is to be honored in the same manner as the Father was honored. As John chapter 5 and verse 23 teaches us. So what is the right response to the grace of Jesus? Coming to speak peace to sinners like these original disciples and like you and I, it is to exclaim from a believing heart, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Someone once said that religion, true religion consists in personal pronouns. Not just the Lord and the God. Not just acknowledging the objective truth, but my Lord and my God. Not that Jesus is the Savior, but that Jesus is my Savior. Now you might say, like Thomas, I cannot and will not believe that. Because I have never seen it. I have no empirical evidence on which to base such faith. If that's you... Note well that in verse 29, Jesus commands a worldview that accounts not only for drawing conclusions based on first-hand empirical evidence, but also on the basis of credible second-hand information. Jesus says in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus is not undermining the reasonableness of Thomas believing now that he's seen Jesus. 
Jesus is not undermining the convincing nature of this encounter between he and Thomas. The only reasonable thing to do would be, in fact, to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead if you saw Jesus alive. So Jesus is not making a statement that's against believing what you see or believing what you can deduce from first-hand empirical evidence. But what Jesus is doing is chiding Thomas for not believing sooner. Jesus is chiding Thomas not for believing now that he has seen, but for not yet having believed prior to seeing. Jesus is insinuating that Thomas should have believed before him. Consider that the uniform testimony of the other disciples was that they had seen the Lord. Remember Mary came saying that she had seen the Lord, and Peter and John went... Um, well, sorry, Peter and John had gone and seen the empty tomb. And then Mary came after that, after they had all kind of believed together that someone had come and had taken Jesus' body and put it somewhere else. After that was the consensus. Then Mary came to the disciples saying she had seen the Lord. And they were all kind of not really too sure what to make of that. Because you have this lone testimony of one distraught woman who tells you that she has seen a dead man alive. But then, after Jesus had appeared to all the disciples together the week before, all of a sudden now, you have at least ten agreeing eyewitnesses about something that happened at once. <laughs> then, consider that Thomas had seen miracles firsthand throughout the course of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus had fed a multitude by multiplying miraculously a very small amount of food. Jesus had healed people with various physical ailments a touch or a word. Jesus had walked on water. Jesus had even raised a dead man, Lazarus. Jesus had also made claims about himself throughout the course of his ministry, like I and the Father are one. Jesus had said that he has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Thomas had a sense prior to the crucifixion that Jesus was God's Messiah. And Thomas had faith in Israel's God, as we ought to infer that he was a believer, in the, at least in the Old Testament sense, even if he hadn't quite put all the dots together about how God was bringing all of his promises to fulfillment in the person of Christ. When you consider all of these things together, the most reasonable thing to do when the other disciples testified that they had seen Jesus alive would actually have been 
to believe that. In other words, Thomas wasn't being too logical. Thomas was not being logical enough. The most plausible explanation for such an about-face of these disciples who had all agreed that Jesus was dead and had been cowering in fear, and but were now claiming that Jesus was alive, is that he was, in fact, alive. Especially when one factors in that Jesus had raised someone else from the dead, namely Lazarus, and had fed multitudes miraculously and healed people with a touch or a word, it was not implausible to believe that Jesus had himself risen from the dead. It was more implausible actually to disbelieve in the face of the other disciples' claim to have seen him. But Thomas inconsistently and irrationally narrowed his criteria for plausibility to first-hand empirical evidence and thereby came to an irrational conclusion, namely that Jesus had not risen from the dead. I'd like to bring this into the modern world before bringing this sermon to a close. There are many, you've met them, and maybe some of you are them, who reject Christianity saying something like this, I would believe in Jesus if he would appear to me. Or, if I personally witnessed a miracle, I would believe. Or some other such statement. I've never seen a resurrection, so I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now listen here, listen carefully. The underlying premise of such statements is that only first-hand empirical evidence will suffice for them to believe. But have each of these people who say such things personally seen firsthand Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania? Have each of these people personally measured the depth of the Pacific Ocean with their very own instruments and taken the reading themselves? There are many things in this world which are possible to gather empirical evidence about firsthand but which we are content to rest on credible second-hand information about. In fact, if someone consistently decided to disbelieve everything but that which they have gathered first-hand empirical evidence about, they would have a woefully inadequate view of the way things are. Well, I don't believe in Japan. I've never been there. If, 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 I were on a plane that touched down there, and I got out and I saw it, then I would believe. Well, if I measured the Pacific Ocean, then I would believe how deep it is, and so on and so forth. Such a person would be a profoundly irrational person. They would irrationally disbelieve a great many things about which there is credible second-hand information to substantiate the claims that have been made. You see, resting on credible second-hand information is not irrational, but rational. To do the opposite 
is actually irrational. It is irrational to disbelieve everything but that which you have first-hand empirical evidence about. So Jesus is not here chiding Thomas for doing the rational thing by believing that Jesus is alive because he sees him alive. It is, of course, rational to believe first-hand empirical evidence, to draw conclusions from first-hand empirical evidence. If you see someone that was dead, now alive, and you can put your finger in the nail marks and you can put your hand in the side, that it's rational to believe that person rose from the dead. Jesus isn't here chiding Thomas like, like you fool, you believe empirical evidence and I want you to be anti-empirical evidence. You fool, I want you to be anti-science. You fool, I want you to be illogical and irrational. That's not what's happening in this passage. Jesus is not pitting sensible, rational, logical, decision-making, and conclusion-drawing against a mystical, irrational, illogical decision-making and conclusion-drawing. What Jesus is doing is chiding Thomas for not being logical enough, for not being rational enough to believe the credible second-hand information that he had prior to Jesus appearing to him. Again, if we were just to marshal it quickly, Thomas was with Jesus when Jesus made claims like, I and the Father are one. I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. Thomas was there when Jesus fed the multitudes, when Jesus healed the sick. Thomas was there when Jesus raised the dead. And now, men who a week earlier had agreed by consensus that Jesus was dead and that his body had been stolen from the tomb, now came to him and all together said, we have seen Jesus. The most logical and rational thing at that point for Thomas to have done would have been to believe. And so Jesus here chides Thomas for irrationally disbelieving credible secondhand information. And so Jesus in this verse doesn't pit good, sound, logical, rational, scientific thinking against faith. Like, there are all these people who think that they have to be rational and logical, but blessed are you if you throw logicalness and rationality out of the window and just believe in a mystical kind of anti-scientific way. That's not what Jesus is doing in John chapter 20 and verse 29. What Jesus is doing is promoting this sort of rational worldview in which not only first-hand empirical evidence is factored into our conclusions, but also credible second-hand information. Jesus knows that after his ascension, everyone who is going to believe in him will have to do so without seeing him. First-hand in his resurrected glory. Everyone who is going to believe will have to do so without seeing him. Jesus implies that such people are not in a pitiable or disadvantaged state. 
but that believing without seeing is indeed possible. And that those who do so will be blessed. Along with those who have seen and believed. Such faith will be, quote, of equal standing, end quote, with the apostles who did see firsthand, which is the way Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. My faith is of equal standing with Peter's, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. If you're a believer, your faith is of equal standing with Peter's, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Our faith is of equal standing with Thomas's, before whom Jesus stood in his resurrected body and said, put your hands into the nail marks. Put your fingers in the nail marks and put your hands in my side. Such faith as ours, we who have believed, though we have not seen, will, like the apostles' faith, lead not to perishing, but to everlasting life. It's not sub-rational or irrational, nor is it something we should eschew or reject to believe without seeing. That was the way that Thomas thought about it. And that's the issue that Jesus is correcting when he chides Thomas. Friends, we are expected to believe on the basis of credible second-hand information. Jesus expects us to believe on the basis of credible second-hand information. And we are promised the blessing of Christ if and when we do. If you are not yet a believer because you have not seen Jesus firsthand in his resurrected body, I suggest to you that you are being quite irrational with respect to the Christian faith. To apply that methodology consistently would leave you irrationally disbelieving in many things, religious and non-religious alike, about which there's plentiful, credible, second-hand evidence, like the depth of the Pacific Ocean, or like the dimensions, or the very existence of Mount Kilimanjaro. As we will see next week, Looking at the next section of John's Gospel, John has taken the time to lay out his eyewitness testimony about the things that Jesus said and did. Why? So that you would believe. And Matthew and Mark and Luke have done the same. The scriptures themselves contain plentiful and credible secondhand evidence. And the natural world, which is what we call general revelation that God has made about his existence and about his nature, further corroborate the Christian worldview that is revealed to us in the scripture. If you are a truly rational person, consider the statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 20 and verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
consider that you ought to wrestle with credible second-hand information. As Jesus tells Thomas here in this passage that he should have wrestled with credible second-hand information. Consider the eyewitness testimony of the original apostles of Jesus. Listen, who ran when Jesus was arrested. But then a matter of weeks later were willing to be killed for the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. At the very least, that should indicate to you that it was a sincerely held belief. And it wasn't the sincerely held belief of one person, but it was the sincerely held belief of the 12 of them, minus Judas, plus Matthias, plus Paul, as well as a great many other martyrs for the faith at that time. That phenomenon alone deserves investigation and a rational explanation. Because if Jesus did not rise and they did not see him, then what accounts for the change in these men who ran the night that Jesus was arrested and then within a matter of weeks were prepared to be killed? And in fact, many of them, most of them did end up killed for their claim. People don't normally change that much in their temperament and in their professed beliefs in a matter of weeks as these men did. Consider that if the first, consider further that the, if the first four words of scripture are true, then nothing that follows in the pages of scripture is implausible. In the beginning, God. Well, all of a sudden, if you factor in God, then nothing really throughout the rest of Genesis and into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on and so forth, all the way through the Revelation. Nothing else is really impossible, is it? If you're a rational person and you concede the premise there is a God, then nothing else that the scripture puts forth to you should really be written off a priority. Could it be, unbeliever, you who think that you're very rational because you reject Christianity because you don't have first-hand empirical evidence, you haven't seen the resurrected Jesus in his physical body, could it be that you are not actually rational in your disbelief in the Christian faith, but are actually quite irrational in your rejection, discounting credible second-hand information that you should be factoring in? Maybe you haven't rejected Christianity thus far because you've thought about it too carefully and too rationally. Maybe you haven't thought about it logically and rationally and carefully enough. Maybe you haven't considered all of the factors that you should have been considered. 
Maybe you're applying an inconsistent decision-making and conclusion-drawing paradigm to Christianity, which you would never apply to the rest of your life. If you, if you would believe 10 people who all witnessed a car accident agreeing in their testimony as to what happened and who was at fault, you should at least stop and consider the claims of these men who not only claimed this, but were willing to die for this claim. You see, if you're bribed to say something, you might hold to that story until they're going to crucify you upside down, or boil you in oil, or chop off your head, or whatever else. And say, no, 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 no. He gave me some money. <laughs> this is not true. Think about it. Think about it. Unbeliever, Christ speaks peace to sinners. Like he spoke peace to the disciples eight days prior to the incident that we read about in the passage today. Like he spoke peace to Thomas. Which means that if, if this is you, Christ speaks peace to people like you. Unlike Thomas, you do not have the opportunity this morning to put your fingers in the nail marks of Jesus' hand and put your hand in his side. But you do have the opportunity to consider credible second-hand information. As Jesus indicates to Thomas that he should have done when the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord. And unbeliever, you do have the opportunity to cry out this morning like Thomas my Lord and my God, to finally reckon with the truth. And Jesus says, even if it's on the basis of secondhand information, you'll be blessed if you do.